0: Let's open the Holy Scriptures first to the book of Genesis, chapter 38, going to begin an Advent series from here till Christmas, the Lord willing. So, our text is drawn from Matthew 1, where the, the persons of Judah and Tamar are made reference to. And we find the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. So let's read that together. I should mention uh, in chapter 37, Joseph, one of the brothers, the 12 brothers, uh, 12 sons of Jacob, had been sold into slavery by his brothers. So that's a little bit of the context. And then in chapter 38, we read this. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. She, yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also." Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter in law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her. And he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulabite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim in the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's turn to the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 1, and we'll read the first 17 verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations." I may preach to you the Word of God from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, a portion of verse 3, the first part, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Holy and loved people of God. Our text this morning is found in the middle of a long list of names called a genealogy. The Bible has more of these kinds of lists in different places. And maybe you have the same question someone once asked me, why are all these lists of names in the Bible? I mean, what's the point of having these long lists of names of people We don't know many of them, most of them. We hardly can pronounce their names. What possible message can there be in such a list of names? Well, brothers and sisters, a genealogy is a family tree. And in the Bible, each genealogy describes a certain family given by God, chosen by God, To play a role in the salvation of his people so the family tree is a story actually it's a complex of stories there's a, a lot of stories inside the family tree stories about what God is doing through the people of that family to bring us salvation And verse 1 of Matthew's gospel tells us that this particular family tree belongs to our Savior Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And the story before us this morning in the third verse is one of great sin and ugliness that is overcome by greater grace and beauty. So I bring to you this word of God, God's grace through a Powerless woman makes way for the lion of Judah. We'll take a look at three things, the alley cat, the feline, and the lion cub. Now, as we read through this family tree in Matthew 1, no doubt you noticed the names of dozens and dozens of men, but you would have spotted, if you were looking for the ladies, you would have only spotted four besides mother mary that's typically how it does work in the genealogies of the bible they they follow the line of the fathers mothers are mentioned sometimes but more by way of exception so when you think of that brothers and sisters tell me if you were the one writing this genealogy if you were picking which particular women you would mention. Would you pick the four women mentioned in Matthew? You might think of mentioning Eve, the mother of all the living. You, he could have gone all the way back to creation. You might have thought of mentioning Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or Rebekah, or Leah, the great matriarchs of Israel. These were women of distinction. These were women who had borne hardship. They were women who were respected. They would look very, very good in the family tree, right? But would you have thought, out of all the women you could have mentioned, would you have thought to mention the name of Tamar? Would you have wanted to draw attention to that rather ugly story in Genesis 38, which we read? And yet that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in our text when he writes Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar he goes out of his way to mention Tamar why is this woman's name mentioned here actually a better question is this why is the name of Judah mentioned here now we wouldn't maybe normally think to question Judah's name and most of the Bible Judah's name is one of Good reputation. It's from Judah that God promises to raise up the Messiah Who would become king it was indeed from Judah's line that King David was born and out of David's line eventually the Lord Jesus Christ whom the Bible will call in, in the book of Revelation the Lion of Judah So when we hear Judah, we typically have good thoughts associated with this man and with this tribe, but but all of those good thoughts, they come quite a bit later than the events of Genesis 37 and 38. For if you go back to that time, and if you were to ask Judah's brother Joseph, remember he he was put into the pit and sold into slavery. If you were to ask Judah, Uh, Joseph about Judah at that time, the thoughts would have been very dark. They would have been very hurtful. In chapter 37, which we didn't read, but it's a well-known story, you know, Joseph had been thrown into the pit by his brothers with the intention of killing him. And that toward the end of that chapter, we read this, Judah said to his brother, so it's his idea, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to Judah. so it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery to a life of misery, to a life of eventual death in that enslavement. How do you think Joseph would have felt about Judah at that time? Later in Scripture, it's true, Judah is likened to a majestic lion, but early on in his life, he acts only like an alley cat. An alley cat, that's a stray cat that lives in alleys, right? Such a cat lives by the law of the jungle, where only the strong survive. And it doesn't matter how you do it. You you can pull any trick in the book as long as you survive. Well, this self-serving nature of Judah comes out in the opening verses of chapter 38. Maybe you want to follow along with me a little bit there as we go through the events of chapter 38. It already starts in the opening verse. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adelamite whose name was Hira. In other words, Judah left the the encampment of his family, and he went to live with a Canaanite friend. He pitched in with his Canaanite friend Hira. That kind of makes you think of someone like Lot, right? Remember, Lot… Who left Abram's company and pitched his tent near Sodom, and later on inside the wicked city of Sodom? And you have to remember that the only true worship of the one true God that was going on in that land—that was happening in the tents of Jacob. It wasn't happening in the tents of Hira the Adullamite. There, you could only expect idol worship, general immorality, and sexual sin. And indeed, sin is not long in finding Judah. Look at verse 2. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. So, this was no casual visit to his buddy Hira. This was a permanent move with permanent attachments. He takes a wife. He takes a wife from among the Canaanites, unbelievers, pagans. Isn't this still how it goes today? A church member strays into the world, meets a woman or meets a man who's attractive, but with whom there is no spiritual unity in worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, and they go together for a time, and next thing you know, they're engaged to be married. Judah marries an unbeliever, he's unequally yoked to the non Christian. Does that kind of thing please the Lord? It's a question for our day too. A Christian and a non-Christian coming together in holy marriage, is that really serving the Lord from the heart? Is that really what God wants from His people? Let's talk about these things as parents with our young adult children. And as single adults, let's keep these things in mind that in our dating and and courting, we only go with those who are truly united with us in serving the Lord. Because from this wicked union, and it was wicked, comes forth wicked children, to Judah, and his wife. When the oldest boy is old enough to marry, Judah finds a wife for him, a young lady named Tamar, presumably also a Canaanite, because he's in the area of the Canaanites. Then we read in verse 7, <clears throat> very simply, But Ur, Judas' firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know what Ur's particular sin was, but the fact that his wickedness comes to light after he was married suggests that his sin had something to do with him acting wickedly as a husband toward Tamar. So God sl- kills him. I mean, this is pretty serious. And yet this Ur is not the only wicked offspring, for the next son, Onan, is no better. In accordance with the custom of the time, Onan is called upon to marry his brother's widow in order to raise up offspring for the dead brother. That would keep the, the brother's line going. Onan would also have his own line from subsequent children, but the first child would be considered a child of the previous couple, of the brother who was passed away. So this was A duty that a brother had but Onan too is wicked he clearly hates his brother he acts only to satisfy himself he's willing to have sex with Tamar but he's not willing to complete the act and so fulfill his duty to his brother we read in verse 9 but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his so whenever he went into his brother's wife he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother He made sure she could not become pregnant. Now, to be clear, the issue here is not in and of itself birth control. That's another topic for another day, too complex to get into in this sermon, but let it be clear that God did not strike Onan dead because he didn't want to have a child for himself. He was struck dead because he didn't want to have a child for his brother. That was his duty. So, the upshot is Judah's first two sons, they are thoroughly wicked, and they they didn't get this from a stranger. That becomes very clear in how Judah himself treats Tamar, a woman who's now been twice widowed by his sons, a woman who has been nothing more than a plaything for son number two, and a woman who may well have suffered some abuse at the hands of husband number one. A woman in the culture of that day, and especially in the evil culture of the Canaanites, where you you didn't have God's law influencing things, was most often viewed, a woman was, as an object to be treated and, and owned Instead of a person to be honored and cherished, a person created in the image of God, that's the Christian or the the godly view from Genesis 1 already. A woman in Canaanite culture had very few rights and fewer people to stand up for her when her rights were trampled. So Tamar has been deprived, deprived of her right. As a wife to bear children, if God would grant those children. Judah had acquired her as a wife for his son, but neither the firstborn nor the second had been righteous enough to do their duties as husbands. So, what does Judah then do? He tells Tamar, You go and live in your father's house until my third son, Sheila, grows up, and then you can be given in marriage to him. But we read his true motive in verse 11 for he feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. In other words, he wasn't going to give his third son to Tamar, he was afraid. Instead of acknowledging the wickedness of his first two sons, instead of preventing the same from developing in the third boy, Judah more or less blames Tamar, lies to her, and protects his third son. So Tamar is in her father's house waiting and waiting and waiting for something that's never going to happen. And in that culture, she had no power to stop it. Judah was oppressing this widow, this young widow, who was his own daughter-in-law. And still Judah is not done dirtying himself with sin, for after his own wife dies, he he seeks his own sexual pleasure in a roadside prostitute, all while leaving Tamar to languish as a widow. And when he discovers... uh, That Tamar has played the prostitute herself in a fit of unflinching hypocrisy I mean you really have to get the sense of that right he's been to the prostitute but she gets condemned he condemns her to death by the public burning by public burning that's the most horrific punishment you can imagine do you see, brothers and sisters, how, how the patriarch of Judah is a self-righteous hypocrite with zero mercy in his heart? The real question is not why Tamar is in the genealogy, but why is Judah in this genealogy of the Savior? Why not rather cho- choose Joseph? Why didn't God choose brother Joseph to be the father of the Messiah? Joseph, who acts in the exact opposite way to Judah. Joseph, who was righteous even under suffering. You remember all that Joseph suffered in Egypt. Why didn't the Lord choose Joseph's line to be the royal line and have the Savior come from Joseph's house of all the brothers? Does Judah deserve such an honor? Of course not. But that is exactly the point, beloved. In choosing Judah to be the forefather of Jesus, the Lord God wants to make it crystal clear that salvation is undeserved from top to bottom. That grace is given even where it's not looked for. That redemption cannot be purchased or earned by the good deeds of people, but that redemption comes free of charge even to scoundrels and alley cats like Judah, even to alley cats and scoundrels like me and you. It comes to us free, to the undeserving, also to felines like Tamar, the Canaanite bride. In contrast to Judah, Tamar comes across remarkably focused on doing what is right, or at least on the right thing. Judah is the victimizer, Tamar is the victim, but she doesn't respond rashly. She doesn't respond hastily. She waits patiently in her father's house for Judah to fulfill his promise to give Shelah to her as husband. So this may have been some years that she waits patiently, holding in check her impulses and desires as a widow in her father's house. You have to keep that in mind. That that throws light on her, her act, her act of luring Judah into harlotry. Of course, it is not right to play the prostitute. And in that sense, she resembles a feline, a cool cat, if you will, who knows what she wants and knows how to get it, but we have to keep our eye on what she wants. That's the remarkable thing here. She's not after the pleasure of sex. She's not after the satisfaction of lust like would be commonplace. If that's what she wanted, she would not have waited all that time to play the harlot, and she certainly wouldn't have gone out of her way to seduce her father-in-law, of all people. nor is tamar just after a baby in general terms like a, like a random child some women have such a strong desire to have a child they might just do about anything to have one but if tamar's only desire was to have a child she could have done that more easily by running off with the boy next door she could have run off with a traveling band of ishmaelites No, what Tamar the Canaanite wants is what legally and rightfully belongs to her. She wants to be a mother in Judah's house. She wants to be a mother in Israel. Judah had sent her to her father's house, but she recognizes, I don't belong here anymore. I have a place in Judah's house I have been betrothed to Judah's third son, and she wanted only to be given the opportunity to bear offspring in Judah's line. Israel was her people, no longer the Canaanites. Do you see Tamar's faith at work here? She is singularly devoted to that goal, that Judah's line be carried on through her, the legitimate wife, but at the moment, deprived wife. The covenant promises of God given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would have surely been passed on to Jacob's sons, including Judah. And he would have passed them on to his son. So it would have been known in the household of Judah the covenant promises of the Lord, how he had promised many offspring through, or to Jacob through his sons, and that one of those children eventually would be a blessing to the whole earth. Remember that original promise to Abram in Genesis 12, verse 1, 2, and 3? It would also be for this reason that the Lord slew Onan, for Onan was deliberately spurning God's covenant promises. He was trying to put an end to the covenant line, spilling that that semen on the ground. Tamar, by contrast, she's holding on to God's covenant promises. She knows. And again, to be sure, her act of trickery, that's not a model For us to follow but in her circumstances we should understand it was a desperate yet understandable act of faith she took risks huge risks first risk was that her father-in-law would not recognize her at the roadside and also she knew that if she were found to be pregnant later on she would likely face the death penalty for prostitution And yet she risked her life for the opportunity to see the rightful covenant heir be born. Judah had robbed her and himself of this lawful offspring. And so in her mind, she had to go directly to the source, to Judah himself, in the hope and prayer that God would bless it and grant a child. She had to go there in hope and prayer. Think about what she was doing. Her goal was to become pregnant through Judah with just one single sexual encounter. Her actions in keeping his staff and cord and seal proved that. She held those bits of evidence, the proof of who the father was, in anticipation of proving at some point down the road that Judah was in fact the father. Is that not an act of trust in God? To put everything on the line for a one-night stand, I mean, humanly speaking, statistically speaking, to be so sure of pregnancy by a one-night stand, the odds of that are not fantastic. Like Rahab and Ruth after her, her actions may not have been pure in themselves, but they were rooted in faith with a desire to see the promises of the Lord fulfilled. So here we have in the line of the Savior, in the family story of our Savior, we have Judah and we have Tabar. Can you see yourself in their stories somewhere? The patriarch Judah acting badly, to say the least, showing not only outright disobedience to the Lord, but a clear lack of faith in God, not interested in church, didn't have to be with the family of Jacob worshiping, could hang out and live in the tents of the Canaanites, not interested in church, a consummate liar, a tyrant, a prostitutor, and a hypocrite. An alley cat, if there ever was one. And yet, that's who Jesus came to give His life for. Alley cats like Judah, like me, like you. He came to turn alley cats into lions. And I wondered if you noticed there was a change in Judah at the end. Verse 26 of chapter 38, when his own sin is finally exposed and he realizes that the jig is up, he says of his daughter-in-law, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. She is more righteous than I that's a word of repentance This is God at work in Judah's heart showering grace upon the graceless showing mercy to the unmerciful and Changing him forever, you know if you go a couple of chapters later in Genesis You find Judah willing to sacrifice himself for brother Joseph the man had been changed If the Lord God can include a charlatan like Judah in his own family tree, then there's room in that family tree for a charlatan like me. And then there's Tamar, an ordinary Canaanite girl who was brought into the family of Jacob by circumstances outside of her control. She's given in marriage. That's how it was in those days. She's mistreated there. She's oppressed there by father and sons alike, and yet through it all she puts her trust in the Lord. Here is God's grace coming from another angle. Where you would expect unbelief, behold, we find faith. Where a person's background only teaches idolatry and ungodliness and and selfish deeds, Behold, we find a person more righteous, more dedicated to the Lord and His promises than a patriarch in Israel. This powerless woman is used by the Lord to fulfill His ancient plans to bring from undeserving Judah a lion who will save his people from these very sins. The proud, Judah, the proud or humbled, The humbled, Tamar, are lifted and together they are fused into the family of God just like us, just like us. Tamar is given an honorable place in the family tree of the Savior and for her act of faith is a deserving mother in Israel. If God can do such wonderful things for Tamar, is there anyone he can't bless with saving faith? That is god's marvelous wisdom which becomes even more clear in the lion cub that he gives as a son to judah and tamar that's how the chapter uh, chapter 38 ends with the birth of two sons while in judah's day the firstborn son meant a lot he was considered the future of the family he was given a double share of the inheritance Everyone expected great things from the firstborn son. So when Tamar is found to be with twins, it became very important to figure out which one was indeed the firstborn. And that's why the midwife ties a scarlet thread around the wrist, the first wrist that she sees coming out of the womb. She even says about that child, this one came out first. So this child then would would be the expected favorite This one would be the one who would carry on Judah's line in the hope of God's covenant promises, but then something unexpected happens in the birthing process. The first baby pulls his wrist back into the womb, and somehow or another, through the Lord's design, the other baby actually slips ahead and comes out first. God causes the second baby to surge ahead of His brother to break out of the womb, as it were. That's how He gets His name, Perez, to break out. And it will be through this line, through the line of Perez, that Judah's line will continue. It will be through this child that David will be born, and later Joseph, and then Jesus the Christ as well. Do you see in this, brothers and sisters, God's pattern? his pattern of grace. Earlier in Scripture, in Genesis, God didn't choose firstborn Esau, the strong and valiant son, but he chose the second-born Jacob, the homely shepherd, to carry on the covenant line. God's always doing stuff like that. He chooses the weak to shame the strong. He chooses what is looked as as second best in the world to showcase his strength and wisdom. So here again, Perez, the second boy, catapults ahead of his firstborn brother, sent by God to break out into the world, a world dominated by man's sin and Satan's tyranny. This little baby becomes a signpost to God's people. There is one coming in this line who will not only break out, but it will also break down the defenses of this sin-torn world and the prince of this sin-torn world. This little lion cub born to faithful Tamar and repentant Judah a sign was a sign that the lion of Judah was en route. The lion king is coming, not to a theater near you, but he's coming to the whole world in bright living color he's going to come down from the clouds no one will miss it the birth of perez pointed to that coming the birth of jesus in the manger guarantees that second coming of his the time of advent brothers and sisters is not just the four weeks leading up to christmas we live in advent every day of the year It's the time leading up to the Lion King's return, which is just around the corner. Are you ready? Are you ready to welcome Him and bow to Him and celebrate His return? You only need one thing, to repent and believe. The Lion King has done everything else. Amen.